Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. This episode, we discuss the EU in vitro diagnostic regulations with Warren Jameson, who is NAMSA's Senior Manager of Regulatory and Quality for our European Division. Warren has been active in the in vitro diagnostics and companion devices segment of our industry and brings over 14 years of experience to our conversation. He has extensive knowledge on all facets of IVD product development and management and is one of NAMSA's experts on the IVDR. We are excited to have Warren with us and hope you appreciate his sharing of his knowledge on the IVDR. So grab a beverage and enjoy. Hey, Rich. We're back again with another episode of the RQA Cafe podcast. Rich, it seems to be like we like our colleagues that are across the pond, as they would say. We have another wonderful guest just joining us from our European, I guess, NAMSA group. And I'm excited to have this conversation to learn more about, you know, IVDR, IVDs, and just to understand, you know, where is the regulation going within Europe? And, you know, what challenges or maybe what opportunities, you know, we have with this new regulation. Hey, Warren, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you. You and I have had some good conversations in the past. I'm really glad to be here, guys. Just looking forward to this. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, this podcast will probably come out in a, a month or two, but, you know, we're the American side here. We're about to enjoy a, a nice four-day holiday. So uh, to start to kick off my our weekend, what, what are you drinking today? At the minute, I am just drinking coffee, but I think that will change as the night goes on. I'm going out for dinner with my wife. We're together 12 years married. So oh, congrats. Next week. Congratulations. And we're going on holiday. So we've been on holiday for our family went during our anniversary. So we're going for dinner. So there is some Irish whiskey later on planned. You know, being <laughs> a Jameson, you have to, you have to represent. So. <laughs> Completely understandable. That's interesting. And we guys say holiday. You guys mean like vacation for us, you know, Americans over here, right? Well, it's, I always find it funny when we talk about holidays because I know from the, even the social structure here, holidays are quite rife in Europe a lot of the time compared to my American colleagues. So I always <laughs> feel, feel bad when I say, oh, oh I'm going on holiday. Like you've just been, you had a bank holiday or the queen has died. The king has just been coronated. We've had a lot <laughs> in the past. Okay? Not that I'm complaining. <laughs> for you. Speaking of um, holidays. I'll oh, go ahead, Livert. So I was gonna say, yeah, what I'm drinking is chocolate tea. So it's like Milo Ovaltine, for those who are aware. So just like our hot chocolate if you're in the States. So just like nice chocolate tea. I have to admit, I went really boring today. So we had a really powerful storm last night and it knocked out our power for about 10 and a half hours and it didn't come on until about 1.30 in the morning. So I'm just drinking black coffee with as much caffeine as I could find. <laughs> so that's going to power me through my day. Rich, you're a man after my own heart. My caffeine intake is ridiculous and I'm not, I shouldn't be, it's not a, I shouldn't be proud of it, but it's <laughs> not to the point now that when I see I think I calculated it one day and it was like 
four or five hundred milligrams of caffeine. Wow. And I was just like, I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Like from, you know, coffee. I think I had, you know, like an energy drink. I try not to, but there is the odd time when we've all got that bit of tiredness. Mike, I, I'm probably not the best for <laughs> advocating not drinking caffeine when I drink far too much, but keeps us wow. going. Well, now I know a power's worn. <laughs> oh, alcohol and caffeine. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm old. You know, I'm pretty old, but I never knew until about a month ago that lighter roasted coffees have more caffeine than dark roasted coffees. I never knew that. I just always assumed it was the bitterness was the caffeine, but apparently not. So uh, I've switched over to lighter roast to get up that caffeine. I remember when I was an R&D scientist, we control I used to make and it had one of the levels on it, one of the analytes that we had to stabilize and everything in a serum culture was caffeine so we used to have pure high grade <laughs> caffeine and this was years ago when my children my first child was just born no sleep and i remember at one point and i never advocate this as a laboratory scientist at any point but I remember looking at it for a split second thinking if i just took a teaspoon of this that'll keep me going <laughs> I'll continue. Or kill you. <laughs> or kill me. I'll bounce it. <laughs> but either way, you know, work won't be your problem anymore. <laughs> Heart rate? Who needs that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's interesting. But now we know about this caffeine. Let's learn more about <laughs> IVDRs and IVD. So my simple question really is, what is an IVD? Not just basically like, what does it stand for? But what is it? What type of, I guess, devices or equipment falls under that category? Would you just explain that for us as we begin? To make it in simplest terms, an IVD is in vitro. We'll break it down a little bit. In vitro, which means outside of the body. You're taking your sample and it's going to be tested. So you think of your saliva samples, your blood samples, your biopsies. When we take those samples and we then investigate what's that is representing. So you think of the easiest one, COVID. We've all come across a COVID assay, I think, in this point in our lives. I think the last three <laughs> yeah. years have changed us all. That's the definition of, a, of an IVD. You've taken a swab, you're taking a sample of the back of your throat and up your nose, and you're testing it to see if there's something there. Or you're measuring a specific analyte or analytes, depending on what it is. So we define an analyte as what you're measuring for. So think of your normal day when you go for a blood you know, for a blood checkup. You get a blood sample taken, an EDTA tube filled with your blood. So then that will go to the lab and you'll run like a CBC, your complete blood count. So that would be on an IVD device. So that would be a hematology analyzer. So I'll be giving you things like your white blood cells, red blood cells, platelets, all the calculations of that gives you like a snapshot in time where your blood is. So you could have, do you have an infection? You know, are you having a raised white blood cell count? Or do you have a decreased blood or white blood cell count? That's a general example. But when I think of an IVD, I usually think of if you've taken a sample outside of the body and you're investigating and trying to draw diagnostic conclusion from that. So you think of somebody, unfortunately, has to go for a biopsy for a tumor or potential tumor. You're taking that and you're going through your FFPE, et cetera, to formaldehyde that sample. And then you're taking, you know, measuring 
to specific genes. So it could be a cancer diagnostic. So it has specific primers that you've they've developed that they correspond to a cancer model. Or it could be a marker that shows that you would react well to a certain specific treatment. So a companion diagnostic. That would be, oh, they're all different types of IVDs. But usually when I think of an IVD, it's always along the lines of outside of the body. Taking okay. a sample and bring a diagnostic conclusion from that. So, so I'm really curious. I will admit that my background in IVDs is pretty limited. And what I've always been curious about, you know, when you think of medical devices, I mean, we cover things like capital equipment, we've got reusables, single-use implantable devices. You know, it's a very, very diverse background. And I've always wondered what makes IVD unique to have their own set of regulations. I mean, why is we've got the MDR that covers this massive amount of different types of things. And then we have the, well, now we have the IVDR coming. What are some of the unique things to IVDR that has pushed regulations to have their own separate set of rules for IVD? I mean, I realize there's a ton of overlap, but what are some of the unique things to IVD that we need to think about? If we step in between MDR and IVDR, I always kind of think of it as, if you think back to intended purpose, if you have a medical device, most times the medical device's intended purpose, it does what it does, has a specific use, depending on the classification, etc. Whereas you can have an IVD, you could have the same analyte could be used in a multitude of different things. So you think of a, I'll use a cancer diagnostic. So a certain gene mutation that's been found to correlate with a cancer. Somebody else may have correlated that same gene in reaction to a specific drug. And that would mean then that the same genes being measured or being detected or mutations being detected, but people are making different outcomes or different diagnostic conclusions. So IVD is kind of one of the specific thing. It's quite different is that in regards to the IVDR, you've got kind of, kind of like three things that you need to kind of formalize. In the IVDR, has, you have to have a scientific validity, clinical performance, and analytical performance. The scientific validity is quite a, an interesting concept because you have to define based on, and you, you can use literature, you can use scientific concept studies, you know, if it's say something very novel, very brand new, you have to define why you're measuring that analyte. So from, I'm paraphrasing, so I haven't got probably the words specifically off the top of my head. Article two of the IVGR scientific validity is analyte in correlation with, in correlation with a physiological or pathological state or disease state. So, you know, a PI3 kinase mutations with thyroid cancer or iron status with anemia. Why are you measuring these analytes? Why are you doing this? What's the clinical benefit? So a lot of times then we have to define that. So I think the IVTR, there is that little subtleties because I think as well, if you go in a little bit further back into the IVDD realm, there was a lot of people making very vast claims. Uh, in my opinion, anyway, okay. humble, humble opinion. When people would say, oh, you go for genetic testing and go, oh, this gene shows to be in correlation with your intolerance mm. to caffeine. I'll use that as a prime example of that. Okay, prove that. Prove that that gene correlates to having a low tolerance to caffeine or a high tolerance to caffeine. There was devices on the market that did that, that made these 
very big claims but had no scientific yeah. backing coming in behind that. But it also kind of reaches further in the, the risk factor we can go into in a second. But yeah, I think the subtleties then of the two regulations, they're very similar. Don't get me wrong, there's good overlaps. Yeah. But the is then in how the device is being used. I think then that's the, where the technical differences can come into play. And I think that's where the two regulations have to differ to kind of cover those subtleties. You can't have the subtlety of an MDR doesn't kind of cover everything from an IVDR and vice versa. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that. That's really good. And I do like the fact you kind of broke it out into those three, I guess, I don't know, groups, right? So just kind of building off of that before, like if you kind of go back to the history of, let's say there was IVDD before IVDR. And I'm not asking you to be like, be, be like a historian to like tell me, you know, <laughs> what's the changes, what's the difference or like, why is it there? But is it really, like you mentioned before, the difference between IVDR and IVD, is that, what would you say is a major difference then to make it a simpler question? I'm sure if you look up on online or any other people that are talking about IVDR, well, a couple of the main things from the IVDD to IVDR risk-based classification. So under the IVDD, you had list A and list B devices. So they were specific named devices. Now, obviously, your devices used in transplantations, some STIs, and things like self-tests were notified body reviewed devices. So you had to bring forward a technical file and you went to your notified body to get your certificate. So if you looked up COVID assays, COVID kits, those self-tests that were done before May 2022, you will see that you'll have a CE mark with a number. And that was a notified body has reviewed that to mm -hmm. say that that is safe to be on the market. Under the IVDR, very different scope. So the IVDD, you're talking 10%, 15%, maybe max of devices on the market were under a notified body. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't realize it was that small. Yeah. So you think cancer diagnostics, companion diagnostics, you know, you register your devices with you know, the competent authorities where you're based and all that kind of stuff, but they weren't notified body reviewed. So now you have the IVDR, risk-based system. You've got your seven rules and you've got your four risk classes, risk A through risk D. So the A's are all low-class, you know, low-risk devices, your dillions, your detergents. Those are in certain analyzers, which you think of analyzers that you load on reagents, load on assays onto. So you can make arguments that it could be a class A because it doesn't, by itself, it doesn't do anything. It can't do anything. Whereas if you have a hematology analyzer, which has the infrastructure built in to generate the results and give you diagnostic, mm -hmm. giving you diagnostic benefit, then raises this risk. Higher class A's, no notified body interaction. Class B through D, notified body review. All devices are B, C, and D have to go through a notified body. So, not so I'm sorry. So that means, I mean, from a notified body perspective, I mean, if you're suddenly increasing the umbrella of what you cover, I have to imagine that they had to go through a massive search for people who could do those kind of reviews. I mean, when you're only looking at a small percentage of the the market and now you're suddenly doing more finding all the people capable of doing those reviews had to be a massive undertaking on their part completely you've got i know of notified bodies who have people just sitting there not you know going through training and everything to become technical file reviewers auditors etc and it was years 
So years commitment. You've seen some of the bigger notified bodies, you think of BSI, Tufsud, some of the bigger ones that have had to commit a lot of time and money to do that at this time. There's only 10 notified bodies under the IBDR. Okay. Wow. Which have ranging scopes. So you think of the class D devices, the high risk and the companion diagnostics, the class C uh, under the class C region. There's not all those notified bodies will cover those types of devices. So that's even narrowing your field even more. So that's 15% that went through a notified body uh, became 85% essentially Huge. over you know, with that transition. And we've seen that. We've seen where it's kind of up and down with it all. We've got you know a couple of years ago, very big, right, we need to do this now. And then the extensions happened. And you see that People don't really know the commitment to getting this change is huge. And you think of devices that were, IVDD was 1998 when it came out. So you think of devices from that region onwards trying to become IVDR compliant. And also, but the fact of the matter is that they've been on the market for 20 years, 30 years, yet mm -hmm. maybe their testing hasn't been updated, state of the art changes. There's a whole host of things that, that changed with the IVDR and the new grandfathering clause, you can't grandfather a device in. A legacy device versus a brand new device has to go through the same process. Wow. That's a major financial commitment. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of testing that is just going to disappear because it's just not financially worth it. Well, that, and yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. Okay. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say that kind of leads into like one of our next or my next question I had is, what does this mean for like the different business types, right? So like a small business versus let's say your larger business is able to like pay for testing or pay for the resources to like have this risk-based analysis or this risk factor included into it. Is there a likelihood, like Rich just mentioned, I guess devices or IVDs coming off the market? Is there going to be a gap or do you see a benefit or a positive with this new regulation? I can see the benefits of it. I can see that you think in the past where we have had devices that have had no notified body review. I'll use again example. This is where the subtleties can come into play. So under the IVDD, a COVID kit, we'll use COVID once again, a self-test had to go through a notified body. A lab-based test did not. Okay. There's a split straight away. So someone who's doing a self-test, and I get that, you know, higher risk people doing po false positives, false negatives. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. But at the same time, during the pandemic, and there is loads of, if you go back through marketing sector, there's a, a lot of devices that were developed within two or three weeks. So from concept through to validation to go onto the market was in two or three weeks. Whereas if I had used an example, we look at the IUTR, we look at analytical performance as an example. And Annex 1 9.1a lists analytical performances either that should be in scope or out of scope and you make justifications as to why. So let's take precision as an example. So precision for a quantitative assay is usually CLSI EP05 A3. It's, you know, it, I have remembered that correctly and people can look it up. But they've got <laughs> some of the concepts of the 20-day rule, you know, 20-day design, which is like 20 days times two sets, the so two times per day. I can't remember the reps off the top of my head. That's 20 days testing to make sure your precision is correct. And we had quantitative COVID assays being released into the market. 
And they said, oh, we developed this within 21 days. So only one day to do everything else. <laughs> yeah. So it, makes, it made me a little bit. So kind of getting flown all the way back. The IVTR kind of, for me, pushes a little bit more on the validation, on the safety. And safety and performance is the whole thing. You know, MDR and IVTR both say the same thing. General safety and performance requirements, GSPRs. We have to meet those. We have to meet safety. We have to meet performance. And I think as the IVTR, or as a regulatory person, pushes you to demonstrate your performance better and demonstrate your safety better. And what's the benefit of your device, which I think sometimes some of the devices on the market beforehand didn't do well, or and both our regulations, MDR and IDR, you go through things like promotion, uh, promotional information, IFUs are all have to be in correlation with your performances. So over time from assays and devices in general, I think the claims and benefits of that device evolved over time and i'm not knocking down marketing i'm not knocking down sales but anything evolves over time and Mm -hmm. when you've got something not looking over your shoulder i've never been in a audit or a auditing a client that something hasn't changed or evolved over time because so nobody has oversight over it that sits still i think when i've looked at products that require a notified body review versus products that don't. I think you kind of hit it on the head there in that I think when the products first developed, I think the companies, you know, they follow the regulations because just because you don't need a notified body reviewer to put something to market, you know, this is both IVD and medical device, doesn't mean you still don't have to meet all the requirements, right? I mean, there are certain things that are not required of a, of like, you know, a class one or whatever, you know, the lower level. But in general, I mean, the expectation is that you're still meeting all the regulations. You just don't have to send it to a third party to review that for you. And so I think when the products are first developed, companies do a really good job of, okay, you know, here's our checklist. But you're right. It's the maintenance side where I think is the big gap in that. Then if you're not having to be concerned about somebody reviewing your work every, uh, you know, on a periodic basis, it is very easy to lose track of how things have changed for your product. So that's a really good point. And I hadn't thought about that. The other thing that I think about when I've dabbled with IVD versus medical devices that to me on the medical device side, everything is about proving the clinical benefit of your product and that, you know, it's showing that you've got that therapeutic outcome that you're expecting where on the IVD side, it's all about proving that the information that's coming out of your IVD product is accurate and reliable. And is that a good way to kind of separate the two out? Yeah, that's a good explanation. I've got, if you want, I've got slides I can show that kind of where the notified like body review. We, I got to talk recently at the RAPS Euro Convergence. We did a, a pre-conference workshop. So myself, a uh, representative friend of ours from Nevada and Tusud, Heike from Tusud, Kira Eri from Nevada and myself, we did a pre-conference workshop for a day on IVDR, on client diagnostics, et cetera. And I've got a nice slide here that probably represents that quite well. So it's it's that clinical utility was kind of a thing always thrown around, and I'm sure you see it all the time, the clinical utility device. IVDR doesn't talk about clinical utility. It talks about clinical benefit. And that's what the notified bodies review on. So what we, from an IVDR standpoint, if I can make sure I share my screen correctly, Show my technology skill here for a second. <laughs> so, when we think of 
performance evaluations, we have to think about clinical evidence. So this is one of the slides that we're mentioning there about how a device is being used and the clinical benefit of it. So the notified from us as the my team building these files together, we're trying to build the information for a client that how their device is being used. So what if if it's a legacy device versus a new device, what state of the art is. So there's our like our three main points to circle around clinical evidence. The analytical performance. So how accurate it is, how does it measure at low, as accurate low as it is in the mid-range? Is it, do you have issues at your cutoff points? If you have a cutoff and the scientific validity, why are you measuring this? What's the point? Are you saying that this is a brilliant target for something? Or is it literature, is it a published thing that you're measuring? It's this, okay. with this clinical condition. And then obviously the clinical performance. So yeah, I laugh at this presentation because AI obviously is a big mass of conversation I think everyone's having. So mm-hmm. as part of these conversations, I asked, I had asked ChatGPT to make IVGR jokes. Some of them are plain awful. Some of them are absolutely fantastic. But I will try and find one. And I think it was as an example for clinical performance. Why did IVD fail as clinical performance study? Because it couldn't perform in front of a live audience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, AI is the cutting edge. It definitely has ways to go. No, but this this is a great point because everything these days is going towards AI. And if you were to think about the benefits of AI, right? Able to like analyze data quickly, right? Be able to see patterns that not that haven't been seen before from someone else, right? Do you see the benefit of AI when it comes to demonstrating those factors that you mentioned, like scientific validity, clinical benefit? You know, like could AI actually be useful for showing that clinical benefit? I guess going forward in the future, I think it has its place, but I wouldn't let it leave it alone by itself. I have. Mm-hmm. Come across technical files that have been generated by AI and they lose it. It's the subtleties of how a device is being used. So I've seen examples where we've done a state of the art search and how is this device being used? And you think of the concept of state of the art, AI doesn't get the subtleties of what the state of the art in a correlation with a device is. They take very basic concepts. That's my, you know, my experience has been. I'm sure as it evolves, it will get there. But I've seen files being put together by an AI and they make sense in certain places, but then they go completely off tangent and others because they haven't the scoring system in play. So you're using literature that doesn't quite get, it's not the point of the conversation that you're trying to have. You know, oh, this, you know, three papers were found that this gene was correlated with fatigue. We're talking about cancer or we're talking about infectious diseases. So it's got its place and it could be helpful, you know, especially in mass literature searches. You think COVID, again, I'm going to use COVID as a really good example. The amount of literature that was published by COVID, for COVID inside a three-year block, it surpassed so many literature we saw before that. And it would, you know, in that short space of time. So us making technical files for, cl- for clients, we've seen searches, you know, in the first year of COVID versus search the amount of output from the third year. The amount of literature in comparison escalated quintually. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you could be doing searches again, three or 400 hits with the search terms you had. If you had the same search terms a year from then, you're probably getting like 10,000 hits. 
and it's just that escalation of information. So AI could be very helpful, but I think I wouldn't take away human interaction with it just yet. Listen, I am just surprised that you've seen AI used for these kind of submissions, to be honest with you. Like I, mm-hmm. I hear about AI all the time. I just kind of put it to the side, like, yeah, sure. But wow, interesting. It, it, you think about this for a second. A, no, no. No, because it's like, this is our job in a sense, right? Now using AI, right? So I was like, okay, great. <laughs> no, but it is sweet. The pre-commerce workshop did have that. We had a lot of conversation on intended use, intended purpose for yeah. uh, under Europe. REO, LDTs, big conversation, especially in the compliant diagnostic realm. So uh, a lot what do those that. acronyms stand for? Oh, sorry. LDT is laboratory, laboratory developed tests. So okay. you have them same in the US. And REO is research use only. So Thanks. could be used in research, et cetera, and not diagnostics. But the IVDR kind of changes how that's used. So REO is not part of the IVDR. You, okay. The IVDR does not govern research use only. However, the amount of tests that are on the market that are claimed research use only, but are being used as a diagnostic. So someone is actually getting a clinical decision being made out of it. So that's not what the IVDR is about. So there's a lot of conversation on that. And then the other side of the coin then is these devices that are using analytics, using these types of ass- normal assays, and then like using MIR, I'll use miRNA is an example. So there's there's developed companies out there that are using miRNAs to make diagnostic claims through patterns. So certain expression of certain miRNAs in certain patterns, and then the AI reads that pattern, and then it will give a diagnostic outcome out of that. So while yes, it could be a completely brilliant AI system, I wouldn't put my my whole heart into it until I saw the validation of that. And be very rigorous because you think of use that in a companion diagnostic scenario. So certain uh, companion diagnostics, as I was saying, are, are devices where you have a gene, or you know, you have a, a marker that you're saying correlates to can either be positively or negatively to a treatment option. So carboplatin, for instance, that there's there are lots of antibody based tests that are treatment options that it with CDXs. The, a lot of these, these big ones, they could have 40, 50 different analytes, different intron, extron mutations, you know, RNA mutations, DNA mutations, and then you're making diagnostic outcome out of that. So usually that goes to your, obviously your, your health practitioner, your consultant who is making your, you know, your treatment option decisions. So you think of an AI making that instead with no oversight, at the minute, that makes me, I would say that they could give you what they think, but I wouldn't take that and go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go treat that patient now with that without looking at to ensure that it's correct. This yeah. is a, you know, there's the risk. You know, what will happen if you treat that, if they made a mistake and you had the wrong treatment? Yeah. You know, very extreme scenario there that I went with. But, um, <laughs> just... <laughs> no, it's, uh, but again, I think. Life or death. <laughs> yeah, but the way how the current thinking is, is AI is a future, right? AI is everything, right? So we're seeing it now for IVDs, either putting research together, like uh, putting claims together, right? It's, it's being used and we really have to look at these, these issues, right? The last question I had, and Rich, I don't know if you have any more questions, but the last question I had was with IVDR, right? 
is there going to be a shift in like getting IVDs to market faster or slower? Like it's just based on your opinion, of course, data is going to come up later on. But, you know, they always say, you know, uh, big government, big regulations always tend to slow things down. So do you think with IVDR, devices come to the market faster, would that be slower? I think it would slightly slower. I think the new, the novel devices take time. Mm-hmm. And well, they should. Yeah. But when you say you have a, we'll use the IVGR as a plain example again. Clinical evidence, if you, the big overhang, and you've got analytical, clinical, scientific validity. You have a novel device that a lot of times it's scientific validity. We establish that through literature. What's been published, why they're using this marker, this gene, what's that correlate with, what physiological or pathological conditions is it correlating with, or disease states is it correlating with. So then you've got a novel device that's brand new. You have discovered, your company has discovered it. And you now have to demonstrate that and you have no literature to back that up. So then you're coming down the, you need to generate that. You've got the scientific concept study variation there. You have to develop then what the scientific validity of that is. I think I'll take time. Mm-hmm. And then as well as that, the workload that we've got. You think of, Class D's at the at the at wraps last uh, last month or in this July now so May, the class D with the transition period class D devices certificates etc expire in May twenty twenty five. So the first file you need to be getting your your class D's C marks. At the last meeting, Tufsud, GMed, few others all said the same thing. For a Class D device, it's taking 12 to 18 months to get a certificate. Wow. So as of this record, you know, we're in the end of June, moving into July. So if you think you've got 12 to 18 months, but you need it at the latest, you need to be submitting by January. On top of that, you've got the Class D common specifications. So that was released in July 2022 with a two-year transition. So specific, similar to the common technical specifications on the IVDD, certain Class D devices have to have certain types of testing carried out to be valid to you know as part of their registration and part of their device manufacturer. So you've got that two-year transition. That's July 2024. You need to be in line with common specifications if you've got Class D device. But you've got 12 to 18 months to left to kind of really get your feet in the door and get ready for IVDR. So I do think it's a delay, but I do think manufacturers are dragging their feet a little. You know, in the past, they are, oh, the notified bodies are too busy. The notified bodies are too busy. The last meeting within, uh, at RAPS, notified bodies had capacity. They will take on more submissions. And they are happily saying that. But they're also stating that there was a reduction in the amount of files being submitted. So. I'm paraphrasing from, I think, presentation by Tufsud, about 40-odd submissions per month. 40 different technical files were being submitted by manufacturers for review to get their mm-hmm. CE marks, get your certification. As of what, April time, that was about 20 in the mid-20s. So it was a reduction when the sell-off period was taken off with the transition to the MDR, IVDR, more MDR transition than IVDR, but the sell-off period was taken off from the IVDR point. There is a cost of time and money, and I'm not even mm-hmm. got into the postmark surveillance sections of it yet, which is another big 
involvement that we didn't have before with vigilance. A lot of times that was after the fact. There's a problem, you need to fix the problem. Whereas the post-market surveillance requirements now are all are, are proactive and reactive. You need to be actively searching out to see what your problems are in the marketplace. And I think that's a commitment as well. So a lot of times we do, so we talk to clients where the IVDR came into play last year, May 2022. So it's here. It's just any device, a lot of devices that had CE Mark devices already. Obviously, we had our transition, Class D 2025, Class C 2026, Class B 2027. But your post-market surveillance requirements and vigilance requirements were in play. But we talked to clients now a year in, they don't have post-market surveillance procedures. They don't mm-hmm. have post-market surveillance plans for their devices. Yep. They're not doing it. And it's a year in. That's, you know, so that's me going back to the question way at the start on what do you think of the IVDR? Main thing is safety and performance. So this was the whole point of this post-market surveillance system to be how safe is your device after it leaves your, when it gets it to the wild. <laughs> yeah. So it is a big change. You know, probably went off on a complete tangent there, everybody, and I apologize. <laughs> but it, it's just what I see from it. It's that there's a commitment time and money. And I think that is, you know, like anything else, there's a lot of effort that goes into these. There's, there is lots of hours when we're writing these. We have to be thorough. And I'm sure you talk to any notified body, the amount of times that intended purposes shift and change throughout the documentation itself is a nightmare. But you think of lots and lots of manufacturers who have acquired devices, who have acquired companies, and all that files, all that information, trying to bring that all together to meet a new regulation is a big commitment within itself. You think you've got hundreds of different devices in your portfolio. I do think that will cause issues. So I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put on my Linford outfit. And Linford (laughs) is our optimist. Linford always asks the question, you know, we talk about red flags all the time. So I'm I'm stealing from you, Linford. I hope you don't mind. But but green flags, you know, what are some good things? And so what I want to just real quickly briefly talk about because we're at the end of our time here but the mdcg documents <laughs> so, so the, the medical device coordination group i didn't know what that stood for until i looked it up so they've produced a ton of documents to kind of help manufacturers navigate mdr and ivdr mm-hmm. and i was praying you know for a, a little nugget at the end for the people who are still listening and paying attention If you're in IVDs, what are some of the MDCGs that they should be using to help them meet the requirements of the IVDR? Do you have any favorites? (laughs) Well, it depends on your device. It depends on the situation that you're in. So I did mention MDCG 2021-4, which is transitional provisions for certification of Class D devices. That's important. You know, this is where how your devices, they're the highest risk class. So the things that you need to be aware of from that. We have then the classification rules, MDCG 2020-16, I think. So if you have your device and you're not too sure where it sits under the rules, you've got your seven rules and you're trying to figure out, and not even talking about implementation rules, just even just the general classification rules. It's a good guidance to kind of push you forward of where you're setting. Are you a class B? Are you a class C? Are you a class D? As an example, Epstein-Barr virus. 
there's a mass variant depending on how it's being used. Epstein-Barr virus screening has been used quite recently in blood transfusions. So I'll mm. put you in the class D region, not a class C. Okay. It's an infectious agent. It's how your device has been tended to be used and how it's being used on the market. So that's a couple off the top of my head straight away. But I think there's another one, MDCG 2022-8. I think it's about application of IVDR requirements for legacy devices. So IVDR is here. May 2022. So what do you need to be doing with devices that are still CE marked under the IVDD going through the transition periods and what parts of the IVDR you should be aware of? Post-market surveillance being one. Do you need to start putting your procedure? Yeah. Do you have a procedure for post-market surveillance? Do you have a plan? What are you generating from that? So you think of any submission to an IVDR notified body at the very least in the, a year ago, you should have had at least a PMS plan with okay. your technical file. So your P, performance valuation plan, your PER, your performance valuation reports, all the other aspects, GSPR, STEDs, all those points. But you should at least have a plan on how you're going to continue to modify that. Now we're starting to move into the region of you should maybe start having PMSRs. You know, the MDCG for uh, that 2022, I think it's 2022-8 at the minute, you was a voluntary PSUR, so class C's and class D's have to do yearly reports, periodic safety update report. Mm-hmm. Whereas a class B's and A's to a certain extent had the PMSRs. So yep. okay. similar to MGR, lower risk. But those are ones I would definitely be saying to people to have a good look at. If you're in the therapeutic side of things, MDCG 2022-10 regarding medicinal devices and the CTR. So if you're making doing clinical studies or anything using companion diagnostic devices or using IVDs as part of enrichment studies for drug treatments, etc., that's a you know a good one you need to be aware of. It's kind of a quick QA on one of the things you should be aware of. There is another one I know we're kind of going over our time and I just love talking way. <laughs> as hey, I hey, hey, don't, you, so. don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this is a good topic. So keep going. Which I think that last one I actually mentioned on the CTR also has a breakdown on is your device a companion diagnostic? So we do have conversations with clients where they are companion diagnostic and didn't realize they were a companion diagnostic or they are a therapeutic drug monitoring assay, TDM, as we aptly call them. So are devices that you are measuring how strong or what level of your the drug that you are taking? Is it in the therapeutic window? Is it too high? Is it too low? But that's not, a, you know, it's not a, a TDM is not a CDX. And a lot of times that gets a little bit mixed up in conversation. So there's a lot of, I'm not saying that People don't know that, but there is conversation where we have like, mm, that's actually more, you're making a, a claim that's more like a CDX than it is an assay or a TDM. So a couple off the top of my head, that would be good rules to function. But it also be, if I had to any manufacturer who hasn't started IVDR transition to try and get them where they need to be, I'd be very telling them a couple of things you need to look at. Look at your data. Look at the data. Look what you've got. What's happened with your device? Or if it's a legacy device, what's happening over time? Has it evolved? Has it changed? What's going on there? What's 
what was it used initially and what's going on with it? How did you verify that? We've had assays where the device originally was great and I had EP09A2, I think it is at the minute, is a method comparison CLSI. So what we say about method comparison is say something, you have an assay that measures exactly the same thing made by, I don't know, Rush. And you as a manufacturer measuring exactly the same thing. So a lot of times as part of verification, you'll do a clinical study where you've got a lot of clinical samples and you'll run them side by side with the two different assays. Mm-hmm. And then you okay. should correlate. So you should de- then you'll be able to generate statistically a coefficient. So it means then it's usually like 0.99 or 1, hopefully you're aiming for. That shows that you're in line with something else in the market. But these legacy devices, we see that they, oh, oh, here's our method comparison study that we did 10 years ago. Well, that device is not, the device you've made a method comparison against isn't on the market anymore. Why? Oh, it had a vigilance issue and it was recalled. So you have now compared yourself to a device that has a problem. And that's the data you're presenting to a notified body. (laughs) Honestly, it. it, That's interesting. Yeah. And also, even the state of, to finish off, really, the state of the art, how has your device changed over time? I always like to use myoglobin and troponins as a perfect example. So when I was a scientist long ago, I had a full flowing head of hair. We used to use like BMP, brain neuropathetic protein, myoglobin, and a few other combinations to help with diagnostics of myocardial infarction, heart attack. Over time, that's changed and troponin I is the gold standard. Don't get me wrong, myoglobin is still used, but troponin I is the gold standard now in myocardial infarction. So they can measure within, like, I think it's like 10 nanograms. If you've got 10 nanograms or more flowing around, it's something like that. You probably go into a heart attack or you've got heart damage. Whereas myoglobin isn't the first protocol still being used, but it's not the state of the art anymore. Or it's not quite the, the top gold standard state of the art. That's probably the better term in, in that. How has your device over time changed in its state of the art? It's probably a good concern. You know, where you're, and, and then obviously the main bulk, the antenna purpose. I think it's Annex 120.4.1 has a breakdown of IVDR of what you should have in your antenna purpose statement. And we see assays on the IVDD that are so generic, so basic that you couldn't claim anything out of it. It's like, oh, this assay, you know, an in vitro diagnostic measuring serum, uh, measuring iron in serum samples or serum EDTA samples, EDTA serum, etc. That's it. So that's what it does. So IVTR makes more emphasis then on why you're measuring it, how you're measuring it. Is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? Is it, you know, for what? For anemia? Is it any other diagnosis, prognostic screening? There's a whole host. So okay. a few things for any manufacturer to look at and be consistent. And the amount of, if you look at any of the literatures out there at the minute, submissions to notify bodies where they do your check before it goes on to the reviewer. So you've got everything in play. I think most times, I think it's like less than 25% of submissions go through with relatively small issues or they clarify quickly and go through. Most times, 75% are thrown back because intended purpose isn't consistent, claims aren't consistent, mm-hmm. that is inadequate. Be thorough. And this is what we do here. This is why 
in my team, we write these files and we try, we are thorough with all your data. We make the conclusions and make the strategy for that to make it as robust for the notified body as possible to get the best possible outcome. And I can confirm your, your team is very good at that. I've worked with Matt, you know, consistency is, is his mantra, man. And he, when I worked with him on a project, I mean, he was one of the few individuals that I met that could look at the bark on the tree and see the entire forest and make sure that everything had the same message. So, so awesome. Matt is is the only person I have ever met who, and any of the risk management files I've ever worked on in my career, I've never seen a benefit risk analysis so in depth (laughs) than I did with Matt's at 40, 50 pages. I'm like, wow, I knew this device inside and out by now. I knew all the benefits. I knew all the risks. Yeah. No, they're they're brilliant team guys, and um, we're always happy to help clients get where they need to be. We've had that success. We've had clients that we've worked with get their certificates. You know, they get past their notified body QMS review audits and get through their technical file reviews. And it's a it's a joy when you have gone through all that, put it all together, and then they come back saying we've got our certificates. We're we're good. It's always a blast. Makes my life a lot easier. Warren, I can't say this enough. Thank you so much. You know, coming into this, we didn't know much about IVDs. I speak for myself. Didn't know much about the IVDR regulation, but you've done a good job of really taking the time to explain it. You know, it wasn't like too high level that we it kind of over our heads. We kind of get the points that you're trying to bring out. Listen, Rich, we say this every time. And at some point, someone's going to hold us to this, but we're, we're going to have to have Warren back. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, Linford, let's go on the record. Are there any guests that we've had that you wouldn't bring back? I, I don't it's think just that we haven't done guests. it. I mean, <laughs> it's just that we yes. haven't done it. That's the, that's the question, right? It's just that we haven't done it. So. Yeah. But well, in all seriousness, like, I was going to say, like, in all seriousness, like, you know, really thank you. I really hope that, you know, this really gets to the audience that's listening to it. You know, like you mentioned before, we had raps kind of live episode, a lot of questions were about IVDRs, right? Or mm-hmm. the IVDR oh. regulation, right? So the point of this episode was really try to answer some of those questions, kind of lay, lay the foundation, what's changing, what's different, what's to expect. And I think for me, you've really like answered those questions. I know that is, is, is not going to be specific. I have this product. I want to do X, Y, Z. The idea is really to understand, give you some like direction and some clarity. So for me, really, really thankful. No, I enjoyed it. It was great fun. I do actually. I was. I remember one of the questions you did send over to me to have a look at, and it was on having a separate analytical performance report. So the IVDR doesn't. You have to have an analytical performance report. So it depends on what way you want to lay that out in your QMS. As a reviewer, as an auditor, etc., I like to have as least amount of documentation as I can. So. I have worked with clients who have had, here's a PP, here's a separate analytical performance report, here's a separate clinical performance report, here's a sci- separate scientific validity report, and then a separate performance evaluation report. Everything individualized, which is still good. You know, it's still notified boys are not going to try and go, no, you're not doing that. But I always, I always try, from my point of view, I always try to incorporate it so the PER has an analytical performance report section clinical performance section, scientific validity section, because when we get into these escalations of 10, 20, 50, 100 different products on the market, the more and more separate reports that you have, 
when, as an example, when you did your post-market surveillance, if you had a PMPF study plan, post-market performance follow-up study planned, and you're doing it, which means you are going to change your intended purpose. So instead of having three or four documents you need to update your intended purpose, you've now got five or six, seven or eight. I always find from an auditor's point of view, the more and more documentation that you in separate reports that you have with, you need to update constantly when your post-market surveillance section, you'll miss one. You'll miss a couple. Okay. And over time, then your non-conformity start to play. It's just my opinion. It was just a, it was a question from your last RAQA. I do think that I try to be as efficient as I can with reports because I've come in, in my own experience, more and more reports you need to constantly keep updated. There's always going to be one that gets missed somewhere at some point, especially when you've got the large portfolios that you're constantly updating. So I try to minimize okay. it for me, minimize those points. But so I, I should. Yeah, thanks for following up here. on that. Well, we didn't bring it up either, but I mean, we have plenty <laughs> to talk about. So, well, Warren, thank you. We really enjoyed having you here. Can't wait to talk to you and work with you on future projects. You know, anytime you want to talk risk, give me a call. <laughs> oh, completely. I am. I think I really enjoyed this, guys. And I enjoy these conversations because they're fun. I know the regulation from probably manufacturer's point of view, it's not, it's not fun. It costs money. But it's a blast to do these kind of, this kind of job. So we're happy to do this for clients and manufacturers. I'm working with you guys on multiple projects across the world. They're all blast. I really enjoyed this. So really, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, Lynn, you. you and I just realized that we're we're going to be replaced by AI pretty soon. So we better get <laughs> good at this podcasting stuff. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. I like it. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the RAQA Cafe podcast on the EU IVDR with Warren Jameson. As always, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the RAQA Cafe. On our next episode, we're going to dive into the clinical world of medical device manufacturing with our guest, Wendy Schrader. It should be an informative podcast for everyone. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from the RAQA Cafe, please visit us at www.namsa.com. And don't forget to bring your favorite trinkets.